I'm currently recording this podcast on Washu, Nomo, and Noe land. Hello. My name is Jamaluddin Amdirahim Barwuthi, and I'm the True Gay Icon. Welcome to the True Gay Icon podcast. I wanted to talk about my life and the things that have happened uh, in my life for a while, but I never, I haven't really found a medium that I feel comfortable or like uh, really felt passionate about or that I felt like I could be consistent enough on to share some of the things that I was thinking about or share some of the things that I was experiencing. And so I'm hoping that this can be an experience for both of us, <laughs> those of you listening and myself, in sharing some of um, the stories from my life that I think can help people understand what it's like um, living in the middle of some contradictions of identity, contradictions of culture, beliefs, values. Um, I am a first-generation Palestinian-American. I am queer, and I am the youngest of four children. Um, we grew up very, very uh, Muslim. <laughs> I'd say my our dad is the, was the imam of our local community here in Nevada for about 15 years, and our mom is a white American woman, and... Um, she was Muslim for a long time, but eventually she uh, didn't really identify herself as much with the faith, and um, she is now, you know, considers herself more agnostic, but my parents are now divorced, and <laughs> we can get into that later. But um, I wanted to talk about some of the things that I've experienced in my life and, and kind of share some information with people and start a dialogue around how we think about uh, people from diverse backgrounds and people from kind of um, mixed backgrounds and different heritages. And sometimes, you know, when we think about marginalized groups or we think about people um, with specific experiences like being Muslim in this country or being an immigrant in this country, we often don't think about their experiences, you know, their children's experience or perhaps people who live at the intersections of multiple identities and that has um, often gone underrepresented in media and I think that that underrepresentation has really um, informed a lot of the way that I thought about my life for a long time and contributed to a lot of uh, the discrimination that I, I faced was you know a response to this lack of representation and you know, I internalized a lot of that, and I think that that's something that happens to a lot of people, and not just people from mixed cultural backgrounds or people, you know, from um, Palestine or, or queer people. It happens to people who aren't represented in the mainstream. And so I'm hoping that by sharing some stories from my life and trying to connect them to um, conversations in the mainstream or just things that I experience um, day to day, it helps to bring some solidarity, some, you know, representation for people who feel like they don't see themselves anywhere. And um, yeah, so the first part of this podcast is uh, going to be a few episodes just kind of uh, giving a general background of my experience and the different aspects of my identity and how they are connected and, and how they really form my beliefs. 
and, and values. And I'm always going to try to share things that are going on uh, currently in ways that you can learn more or become more active in some of the things that I will speak on. This is a work in progress. It's, um, you know, a very rough thing. I'm just kind of learning how to podcast as I go and learning what I want to share and, and kind of um, going to be try and be as vulnerable <laughs> as I can uh, while also being informative and helpful. And so your feedback is always welcome. I have an email address that you can um, respond to, the so that's true, gayicon at gmail.com. Um, so you can send any kind of inquiries or, you know, whatever that way. And yeah, so for the, for the for, I have a few episodes um, kind of already drafted. And so I'm just going to commit to doing those for right now. And if people like it, I would love to, you know, expand on it. I think um, there's a lot of people that could bring important, you know, perspectives. And I'd love to interview people and make this a, a collaborative effort and a community space. And I think, um, yeah, I want to start by uh, giving people an idea of where I'm coming from as a person by sharing some some more personal stories. So I will say a lot of these stories may get uncomfortable. There's, there's going to be some adult topics. I'll try my hardest to give enough warnings and content warnings but there are some serious things that I want to talk about and that I think are important for people's um, perspective on on some of the issues I experience as a queer person as, as a Palestinian, as a Muslim so I ask that you come with an open mind and I ask that you also come and with some mercy toward me, I'm, I'm doing this a lot, um, you know, on my own time of course this is just a a passion of mine and and so I will always try and provide as many resources as possible but I have yeah a, a long life and a long list of experiences um that I don't I can't always identify where I learned certain things and so like I said I will try to provide as many sources as possible but I if I fall short you know please feel free to call me out and I will try and provide um, more resources or at least more, you know, citations or perspectives. And then also, please understand this is my perspective. And this, a lot of this is from the view of a Palestinian. And there's a lot of uncomfortable things that I will talk about that I think can be easily misconstrued. And so I will ask you to, again, remain open-minded to learn things from a different perspective and to consider things you may not have considered. And I will do the same in return. Um, like I said, I'm open to feedback as long as it is informative and constructive. If you have issues with what I say, I would um, ask for you to provide at least a, an action um, resolution or an opening for an action resolution. I believe in being called out and calling people in, but I think that it needs to come with... Um, even if it is, you know, a conversation about how to resolve those actions, I think that's important for community healing and providing and creating a platform where we really can create and provide solutions for these these issues all of us experience. And so I'm not perfect and I want, you know, to approach this with, with love and dignity and I ask for the same.
I promise not all of my intros will be quite so intro-y, but I, you know, I think a, an intro intro deserves a little bit of extra time. So today's episode, I want to talk about representation. And, you know, a big interest for me in making this podcast is ensuring that other people have... Um, you know, have feel represented and that people like me who may feel like they don't see themselves anywhere, um, that they do have some representation or, or if they see them, you know, hopefully some people will see themselves in my experiences and be able to learn, um, from them. And so, um, I'm going to share some stories about some very, um, large moments that, you know, created my worldview and understanding of representation of people like me um, in the media and in my kind of pursuit for that representation. Um, I'm going to gloss over, you know, a lot of things I will say now. Um, we're going to be talking about 9-11 and we're going to be talking about the Pulse nightclub um, shootings. And so if you are sensitive to content about that, um, just be, please be aware that the stories I'm going to share are around those events specifically, um, and those were two really kind of critical moments in the way that I, um, you know, understood representation and, and really uh, times that I sought representation of people like me and, and um, with my experience. And so, yeah, I... I, I um, Enjoy. I have always really struggled in finding things that I felt represented me in media and in culture. And growing up, I never really fit into any of the stories that were kind of given to me that were supposed to represent my experience and it had a lot of different facets being a Palestinian and being a Muslim growing up in America um, and you know being half white being white and being American I think it had a lot of there, there's just not a lot of people talk about what the experience is being a first generation person um, in this country, and not a lot of there's not a lot of representation for Muslims in general, and not for Palestinians, and so all of these things together created an environment where I knew very early on that I would never really see, or I felt very early on that I would never really see adequate representation of my experience and of the values that I hold, um, because they're unique and they're unique even to people from a similar background because you will never have you know people with the exact same set of values and I think that that may be true you know very broadly but I think specifically in homes with you know two or more cultures that are represented and and you know you have the culture of the of one parent and the culture of the other and then you also have to contend with the culture of where you're growing up and so you will never have the exact same mix of those values 
I think, in two families that may have similar, you know, ethnic heritages or, or, or cultural backgrounds. And so for me specifically, I knew very early on that I would not have adequate or, you know, positive media representation um, for being a Muslim and for being Palestinian and even for being first generation. And so I tried to kind of piece that together. And there were, you know, some things that um, would be created for specific audiences. So I consumed a lot of Muslim media early on in my life. Um, but a lot of it was targeted at Muslim Americans who may be reverts. And so they're not, they weren't born into the culture. And so it, it felt, um, <laughs> I don't want to say basic, <laughs> but it, it felt very kind of um, limited in what it talked about and, and how it expressed the values that it was communicating because it never really connected it to a broader culture. And so I had a hard time being able to understand what parts of my life or which values I derived from being Muslim and which values I derived from being Palestinian which values I derive from being an American. Um, and I think that really, like, had a lot of... Um, it brought a lot of complications, you know, to, to when I think about looking for representation. There's no... There was no media, you know, talking about that outside of those very strict... Um, kind of pigeonholes are those stereotypes. So you had very religious media that was serving a very specific purpose and it was typically produced by more kind of conservative um, companies. And so it was very um, targeted and specific about what it would share. Or you had mainstream media. And like, like growing up, I wasn't allowed to watch um, Batman because... I wasn't allowed to watch mini cartoons because of the way that um, Arabs were represented. And my mom, I, I mean, I was born in 92, and so, like, my mom had two brothers who were serving in the Gulf War, and at the same time, it's the um, Intifada in Palestine, and so this is a time of civil unrest and it was one of the large, the, the most violent and kind of largest um, civilian uprisings of the Palestinian people in many years. And these are happening at the same time while we're living in New Mexico. And so, you know, there was a lot of, I think, tension that I could feel even as a child, even if I didn't understand all of the intricacies of it. I knew that we were under a certain level of scrutiny, um, just being Arab. And so then adding the complexity of my father trying to teach us about Palestine while seeing these images of the Intifada because he won, he, that, that was his connection. That was him also processing this, um, you know, extremely monumental time in Palestinian history. And so it created an interesting atmosphere. I think because I always knew, like I said, that I I didn't have representation that I felt really spoke to me or really represented um, me and and my people and my heritage in a positive way and in the way that I knew it did.
And so I felt really lost, you know, having difficult conversations or, you know, I, I wasn't sure how to navigate um, when people had questions or people, you know, their lack of understanding then becomes a direct um, threat to my existence. Because if the only representation they see is this inherently negative representation of Arabs and of Muslims and of Palestinians, particularly in America after 9-11, then those Islamophobic beliefs start to get projected on to Muslims and onto Muslim communities. And so I became very, very aware of this um, throughout, you know, the the when 9-11 happened as well as the few years after it. The the regularity of seeing um, Middle Eastern people and Muslims and and uh, even Palestinians to some extent um, in the media, I think, increased dramatically because of 9-11. And I remember waking up and my mother was on the phone with a woman um, that we knew from the masjid, from the mosque, and I remember my mother saying, like, um, basically, like, with a plane, like, in, in disbelief. And I gathered that uh, a plane had hit a building, but I wasn't really sure about the specifics or anything. And I'm I'm eight or nine years old. And so I wake up and uh, open my door, and my mom is headed into uh, the room where the TV is. So I follow her down the hall and into the den where the TV is, and as I step into the den, um, that's when the second plane um, hit the World Trade Center. And it was like everything just stood still for a minute. And I wasn't sure. I mean, I knew that it was real. But when I heard that a plane had hit a building, I immediately assumed it was the mosque because of the person that my mom was on the phone with. And the mosque in, in where we live in Nevada is right below a plane um, path to the airport. And so I just assumed that there was an accident or something. And so to, to go from that, you know, mindset to walk into the, um, the den and see my dad sitting there watching the news and, you know, CNN or I don't even remember and to see this image, I just was stunned. And within moments, like literal seconds from, you know, witnessing this atrocity, my parents started talking about the ramifications and just like being worried about how people in the community would react. And at this time, my father is serving as um, the imam of our local community. As I said, he, he had um, served as the imam for about 15 years. And at this time, he was, you know, just still getting to know the community. We had just moved to Nevada. Um, but he is a very good speaker, and so he was interacting with the media a lot just after 9-11 and things. And I think that, you know, it, his immediate focus was on his community when it was happening. And I think for my mom as well, it was it was on you know, her kids, but her kids is an extension of her community and knowing, you know, she wears hijab at the time and thinking about all of the women in our lives who also wear hijab and and just not knowing, you know, what to expect. 
and they were already um, saying that it was the act of Islamic terrorists. And so, you know, there were valid fears. And that day my mom sent me, or my parents sent us to school, I mean, and my uh, siblings. I'm, I'm one of four. I'm the youngest of four. And my parents had four kids in six years. And um, so we were, you know, very close together in age and, and in similar grades in school. But my parents just um, thought it was important to maintain, you know, a level of normalcy. I think my mom was still going to work. And my dad, I think, was going to kind of watch the news and, and see what's going on. But, you know, there was a, a moment where we, my, my parents wanted to make sure we we're proud to be Muslims and that we know that, you know, people are just scared and they're reacting out of fear. But there was really never any conversation around how we were feeling about the event itself. It was, you know, my parents' reaction was so focused on on protecting us from the way the community could react or on on what to expect in the fallout. And I mean, this is after when we lived in, in New Mexico just before, and this may have been before I was born, but during the Gulf War, we had um, death threats sent to us because we owned a restaurant and people knew that we were Muslim and that we were, um, that we were, you know, a first generation family. And so I think my parents were really focused on maintaining, you know, a sense of safety and, and not making, not, they didn't want us to feel scared or ashamed of being Muslim. Um, but I think that, that, you know, really provided a lens for how I saw all of my, you know, interactions about being Muslim and all of the things that happened to me um, from people's perception of me as Muslim. The the focus on the community interaction and on, you know, almost saving face for all of the people we're interacting with on behalf of Muslims, it was really intense and it didn't really provide... Um, a space for me to understand how I felt about what happened personally. And at the same time, it was this huge shift. I mean, I went, I was in the third grade and the people in my class, they just, you know, reiterated whatever they heard their parents saying. And so it was a bomb threat or it was, you know, an attack from another country. And now it's because they hate us and, and all of this. And then um, at the same time, you know, I was trying to, saying, you know, I knew that that's not the case. And, you know, no, not all Muslims. Like, we don't know exactly what's going on, but they're third graders. And, you know, they may be able to repeat facts, but they're not at an age where, you know, anything is contextual or, like, they can really understand what's going on. And at the same time, the things that they're repeating can be very harmful. And I realized how quickly I had become a Muslim in the eyes of my peers. And, you know, the day's... Before that, you know, on, on September 10th, I went to bed um, just like a Palestinian and, you know, who was also a Muslim. And they and people didn't really, I think, especially third graders, didn't really think beyond that. It wasn't, you know, at the same degree that it had been five years before during the Gulf War. And, and so, you know, these kids were, were babies the same way I was. And so this was really the first... Um, the first event like this that's very centered on Islam and that, that really drove a lot of Islamophobia in, in America 
that I was like of the age to be affected by it. And it really colored my my perception and the way that I reacted to things because my mom would continuously tell, you know, me and my siblings that you may be the only Palestinian that people ever meet and you may be the only Muslim that people ever meet. And so, you know, not so much in a sense that um, that we have to be a good example, but I think that that was definitely the undertone. Um, the overall sense was that, you know, we should want to share the pieces of our culture that we love and, you know, the things that we know about it and not be, um, you know, not feel embarrassed or attacked when people ask these questions. You know, and I think for my mother, she had a very different experience with people approaching her about Islam. And because she's, you know, she was raised a white woman, it's a very different experience because she has a different relationship with Islam. She has a different relationship with the Middle East. And so, you know, it, it just created this kind of um, this this big difference in the way that I was experiencing things and the way that she had responded to them or she she thought that I should respond to them. And I think that this is really because she's white and she doesn't have the the experience of a non-white person in America with racism. But I think ultimately what my mom didn't understand and, you know, really couldn't understand because she's she's not even, you know, wearing hijab and stuff. It's a different experience. And so I think what she couldn't understand is that a lot of the time these people weren't asking questions out of curiosity. These people weren't asking questions from a place to learn. And so as a young child, just believing, you know, that I have the um, responsibility to engage with people who may, who are not entering this conversation with good intent. And I think that that really, um, it took a long time for me to unlearn that. And it, it also really shaped the way that I saw and understood being um, queer. And so, you know, I didn't come out for until, until years later, but this, um, this interaction and this, this experience right after 9-11 and, and the years after it um, formed the way that I would respond in the future. And it was the year following that immediately I had another experience um, with this exactly. And so we, I had moved schools and I was going to a different school um, because we had moved from a house that we were renting and had bought a house in another neighborhood. Um, and this new neighborhood is, you know, I, I think 12 miles out from from downtown. And so it's kind of like a suburb. It is... Um, it is poorer. It is a lower, you know, economic status, I think, than where we were renting. Um, and at this time, each of us, all, all of the kids, the four kids were going to different schools. And so we were really spread out. Both of my parents are working. And it was in the first few, I, I was really excited, um, to start in this new class at this new school, even though the new school was, you know, in a more conser- kind of conservative neighborhood with with more white people, essentially, than where I had been previously, there was a young boy in my class that I knew from from the masjid, and I was very close, you know, with him and his, his brother, and, and so I was excited to have, you know, to not feel so alone in this experience. But, you know, I, it, that, that changed quickly. Um, yeah, so I was going to a school that had um, 
relatively different views than where I had been previously. And, and even then, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. And I'm having these conversations with kids now as we're getting older um, that are more about my faith and why, you know, I don't eat pork and why I don't, you know, all these different things. And then the conversation of um, boys and whatever is starting to occur as I'm hanging out with fifth and sixth graders. I I don't know. It just like, I, that is the time that I noticed a more dynamic shift and needing to be um, more aware of like why we do these things in Islam and like why I was raised this way to be able to like talk to people about it. Um, and it was within the first few weeks of school and I um, was sitting in class and we we're going over the number alphabet. And this teacher who's probably at this time, I would say mid fifties, maybe late fifties even, he is going over the number alphabet and he says, we call this the Arabic number alphabet because it comes from the Arabs who we hate. And I like choked. I didn't know, you know, what to say. I didn't know how to respond. I felt my blood started to boil and I I, I look over at my friend, um, you know, worried or, or was seeing, trying to see if he was responding. And it was like he wasn't even listening. And the man corrected himself and he said, well, actually, it's the Muslims that we hate. And it was like a gut punch. It was like a double down of exactly what I knew, you know, already because of my awareness and the way that people had changed, you know, the way they were treating me after 9-11, I, I knew the sentiment before it came out of his mouth. And I can't even remember the rest of the day because I just was so in a daze. I couldn't believe that this really happened and that this man said this to me. And um, the next day my parents came with me to school. I usually walked by myself, um, but my parents came with me to school and we went to the principal's office and she was, you know, of course, horrified that this happened. Um, and she wanted to be sure, you know, we knew that this didn't project their values as a school, whatever that means. And she decided to bring this man in to confront us. And he immediately started, um, you know, avoiding it. And he said that he... Um, he didn't know that he had any Arabs in his class. He didn't know that he had any Muslims in his class. If he had known, he wouldn't have said that. But he was never really, like, apologizing for saying this or for the sentiment. And, you know, he there was this air of, like, you know, he believes that people can work for the life that they want. <laughs> and it just was, like, extremely um, belittling because he didn't... Nobody was really holding him accountable. And now when I think back to it, I feel like all of the other people, you know, outside of my parents, the people who worked at the school were aware of this man's sentiment. And I remember my dad telling me, you know, ba so basically they, at the request of, of my parents, they switched me into a different class. They said they had another teacher available. And that was it. And the man basically got a slap on the wrist and like, sent back to teach this other Muslim child as well as, like, all of these other kids. And he went on, you know, to work a full career <laughs> and to retire through the Washoe County School District. And one of the beautiful things is that the the next teacher that I had, her name um, is Mrs. Nenzel, and we walked into the classroom and she was wearing a necklace that says Allah in Arabic, which means God.
and she recognized my father immediately from him doing interviews on the local TV stations and in the local paper. And so she, it, I was relieved because it showed that she had an awareness and that as well as, you know, an empathy towards Muslims. And um, I felt much more comfortable. And she ended up being one of the most influential teachers that I had had. And, um, but at the same time, you know, she kind of dismissed this man again as a shithead. <laughs> but like everybody was so quick to protect me from the shittiness of this man that like it inherently enabled this man to continue his shittiness because nobody was holding him accountable for the things that he was saying. And additionally, nobody was like extending that protection to care like protecting is one thing making sure people don't say that to me again is one thing but like making sure i could recover from it <laughs> making sure it didn't stick and like create my values and the way that i interact with everyone around me um that didn't happen <laughs> and it is has taken me years to kind of work through it and years to um, realize that that's not the case and that I um, didn't have the support that I needed when I needed it. And at the same time, the following year, um, a young Egyptian-American girl who was going to North Valleys at the time, which was the high school I was zoned for, and the school my sister was was attending at the time that this happened, um, sued the school district because she was being constantly bullied. And when she went to the faculty, they suggested that she remove her hijab in order to not be, um, as, you know, discriminated against, essentially. <laughs> and, you know, my sister, both the sister who went to the same school, as well as my other sister and myself, my brother, my mom, all of us, we have stories <laughs> that were similar, but... For my mom, you know, her perspective, and I think my dad's as well, is like they wanted us to have a chance, at least, for a normal life. They didn't want us to, to feel like we were isolated. We didn't, they didn't want us to be ostracized or singled out. But I think what they didn't realize is that that was already happening. And that, that young girl, her, her court case was eventually settled in 2007. She dropped out of school and... Um, got a settlement of $350,000 from the county. And to look at that and look at my own experience and the experience of, you know, my siblings and then think about the the my friend who stayed behind in this racist man's class and, and to think about the things I've experienced, you know, throughout school, there's a systemic failure to really address um, vulnerable children in our in our education system. And so... Um, yeah, but that, that was a really formative experience in how I was interacting with people and how I like came to start to feel very, very othered. And it had started before, you know, the school that I have, I was familiar with, um, I, I was consistently one of very few white people in my classes. 
And so I felt very comfortable, you know, talking about my culture because there was a lot of different, there was a lot of kids from different cultures. Um, and after this experience, I actually ended up moving schools again and going to a school that had a lot of Turkish Muslims that were part of the board and part of the faculty. And so, you know, it just was a move to be around communities that were more like-minded and communities that were more um, understanding of the experience because that support was not available um, through the Washoe County School District. So um, I changed schools and I went to a school that had a larger Muslim community, like I said, um, and I got older and I um, started to have experiences that were you know, kind of troubling to me because I found myself more and more outside of what I thought was expected and outside of kind of the religious expectations of what my family, what I felt my family may want, may have wanted and what, you know, my religion was expecting of me and I kind of expected of myself because of that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I moved to the Middle East um, right after I graduated high school to study Arabic in Amman. And I ended up coming out in the Middle East. Um, and my coming out story is important, but it, it wasn't uh, really centered around uh, my experience in my search for representation. Um, I will say that I did meet some LGBTQ plus Arabs when I lived in Jordan, and that was really um, foundational. And I did meet, you know, LGBT people who contributed to my coming out and, and my coming out definitely does have a lot of, of facets um, that, that, you know, formed my worldview. But I, when it comes to representation, I, I wanted to keep this episode relatively short. And so um, I'm kind of going to skip through a lot of pieces, but we'll come back to it in future episodes. And so, you know, the main thing is that queer representation in the Middle East is also something that is lacking. And in, even in the West, there was not a lot of queer representation um, when I was growing up. A lot of the LGBT representation that I had access to was always, you know, in a comedic way. And so people doing drag, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire is a very popular movie from my childhood. And um, other, like my mom's favorite movie, growing, one of my mom's favorite movies growing up, um, which I still love the movie, but is um, The Crying Game, which, um, you know, has problematic representation of trans women. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of the media that I consumed early in my life about queerness was um, a joke almost, or was always around the idea of being comedic. And I internalized a lot of that as well, you know, as, as somebody who is funny and likes to be, you know, funny and um, likes to be the center of attention and things like I loved to dress up and, you know, act like a woman and make my family laugh because of it. And, you know, there's also a history in um, the culture of Southwest Asia um, that the youngest son um, plays a role of the host and the host entertains. And then there's also, a, a, you know, a separate culture, which is not related to the youngest son, but, uh, you know, related to the region. And it, it is, um, has several iterations, you know, through the centuries of, 
of history in this area, but there was a um, history of like a gender flexible kind of role of young men who would take on effeminate um, kind of features and, and, and accentuate effeminate features and dance and sing and entertain. And I, you know, just learning about those things in my life have really contributed to the way that I think then about my childhood and how like it was allowed for me to express that um, that kind of contradiction to the gender binary or that that expression outside of what was expected of me as as, as someone assigned male at birth um, when it was framed as a joke or you know when it was to entertain people then it's funny but you know, taking that further and wanting it to be something more permanent, something that's not a joke, something that's just part of your identity, that's something that's taboo. And, um, you know, specifically in Middle Eastern culture as well, there comes a, an age when it is no longer, um, you know, admissible for young men to be around women and women start to cover and wear hijab. And so, like, for me... That was almost a very like um, jarring experience because I didn't. It, it was arbitrary. It just it wasn't because I started growing facial hair or, you know, it did correlate with me getting taller at some point. But yeah, it just kind of made me um, feel very isolated once again about this experience I was having through puberty with gender. I was being misgendered a lot because I had long hair and. A, you know, a high-pitched voice and soft features and beautiful eyelashes and gorgeous eyes and, and whatever. And on, on top of that, my family had um, several stories about, you know, be, me being effeminate and, and enjoying that. And my mom, one of the stories she tells me of when she was pregnant with me is as um, believing, you know, that she was pregnant with a girl and that she had been right. I'm the youngest, again, the youngest of four, and she had guessed the gender, the the um, well, really the genitalia of each child um, before, and uh, that she knew that I was a girl. And then they went to take a um, the ultrasound, and I actually had my legs crossed, and I wouldn't look let them see. And so that that I you know my mom would tell me that story a lot as a kid, and it would always point to how I've just always been different kind of when it comes to gender and to kind of explain some of my actions. Um, but I don't know if for, for me personally, it took a very long time for me to even think about gender and like my expression of gender. I just assumed if I liked men, that meant I was gay and that that was the end of it. And so, you know, this is something I'm thinking through now even, and I'm kind of unpacking is the way that I understood gender and gender roles, you know, in mixed culture families or households are very mixed, you know, and, and you take ones from one and others from the other and they become, you know, the way you understand gender roles. And so that has a lot to do with, you know, having an Arab father and a white American mother versus if I had an Arab mother and a white American father, and so, yeah, I think, like, my 
journey for representation didn't really have a lot to do with my coming out. But then I started to feel this lack of representation then of um, a, a, a South, a, a, an Arab and a, a Muslim, you know, representation within the queer community. And this is often a point of contention because people assume that I you know, was ostracized or pushed out of the Muslim community because I am queer or because I'm I, I'm gay. And that assumption is always with the juxtaposition that then my white family and the white side, you know, of my identity was wholly accepting. And the reality is that I removed myself from faith entirely because I didn't know, you know, how to interact with it because my understanding of what it meant to be a good Muslim did not align with what, you know, with who I was becoming and with my understanding of sexuality. But that wasn't, you know, that's not unique to Islam. That's not unique to my experience as a Muslim. That is the experience of many people who come from very religious backgrounds, regardless of the faith, um, when they start to express or, you know, when they start to really come into their queer identity and accept their queer identity. And so, you know, that idea that my experience as a Muslim was inherently more um, negative or inherently more almost violent to somebody who grew up in a very religious Christian household comes from a place of ignorance and ultimately a place of racism. Um, And so I struggled really hard. You know, I struggled to find representation within the queer community of um, being a Muslim and at the same time I or being religious at all and so at the same time I felt distanced from both communities um, in the sense that I I was you know not really looking for um, my faith or spirituality at the moment but I also didn't want to be excluded for it and so the result was very isolating and um, this also coincided with a feeling of isolation from um my the the religion and feeling like I wasn't um welcome in my father's kind of world really because um you know he he sees Islam as a faith and he doesn't connect it to a cultural experience but Islam is the only faith that I've ever known and so you know, the only holidays I've ever had, the only family gatherings, the only values that I have are all from Islam. And so just because I'm not praying or going to the mosque or, you know, I'm not um, in a traditional sense, the idea of what a practicing Muslim looks like, it doesn't mean that Islam isn't important to me. And so I think, you know, there is definitely a lack of communication and there still is. And so that really kind of removed me from um, the Muslim community in addition to the queer community or the LGBTQ plus community. And I started to really identify more with some of the louder and more kind of left-leaning voices and the, you know, anarchists and the people who started the Stonewall riot and understanding the people who have been seen as the quote-unquote underbelly of the LGBTQ plus community who, who have... Um, also gained the least in the push for um, queer liberation were the people who started the movement, were the people who really kind of informed that. And I started to really identify with that because I felt like the things that I was really passionate about, you know, solidarity with Palestine and understand, I, you know, in this time around getting to 
the, the Pulse nightclub shooting, I started to learn more about police inequity. And it was when Michael Brown was murdered that I feel like I really woke up to understanding um, systemic oppression in this country and, and the Black Lives Matter movement. So as I got to learn more, you know, about um, queer history and queer representation, the more that I um, started to really see the connections to queer liberation and just the understanding of oppression in this country, and as specifically as it relates to uh, Black Americans. And I was very interested in, you know, understanding how I, um, you know, how I may contribute to anti-blackness and, and in unpacking my own racism. And I spent a lot of my life believing that I was a white man and not really understanding the implications of being a person of color and being a white passing person of color. And it really had a lot to do with how I understood my own privilege. And it wasn't until I was in my early 20s um, and I had a friend who said something very simple to me. And, and um, so I ran into my friend um, at a bar and he, we saw each other from, you know, across the, the patio or whatever and went over and gave him a big hug. And he said, oh, how are you doing? We really need to stay in touch. Us gay boys of color need to stick together. And... It just was like this brief comment, but as soon as he said it, all of these things that I had been reading, you know, about um, Michael Brown, and then I started learning about um, you know, just the effects of capitalism and colonization in um, the United States, as well as in South America and and in Latin America. And it it just so eerily mirrored the things that I knew were happening um, to be to to me and to my family in in Palestine, and so um, when he said that, it just like clicked, <laughs> and I understood then why I had always felt like I was you know raised um, believing one thing, and that was that you know I'm I'm safe and the American dream that I have access to um, you know success and wealth through working hard and all of this and that like. But I, my experience was different, and I always had this, this tension. And you know, especially I'm a very passionate person when it comes to politics. And Palestine is not um, really a large talking point in in American politics, and definitely not to the level that it should be. But you know, having that experience of one side being told that the system is, you know, how we must work to bring justice and and to bring liberation but then consistently never being represented in that system. It, it, it was this um, dichotomy that just drove me insane. Like, I didn't understand, like, why am I treated like this? <laughs> and it's really, it's, it's very loud in how it speaks of my understanding of structural oppression, that it wasn't until I considered myself a person of color that I essentially understood racism. And that's not to say that I didn't, believe in racism or I didn't, you know, understand that racist things happened, but I didn't connect the racism that my black and brown friends were experiencing 
to the racism I was experiencing. But, you know, to, to understand that the racism that, you know, black and brown people in the United States experience comes from the same system as the racism I experience um, was a paradigm shift for me. And so, you know, le- this was all leading up to the um, Pulse nightclub shooting. And, you know, that experience really kind of put all of my learning and, and as well as my understanding of my identity um, into perspective. The morning that I found out about um, the Pulse nightclub shootings, I woke up to a text from my mom. Um, and it didn't say, you know, what it was about or anything. It just said, what do you do when your right hand hits your left? And I didn't know what she was talking about. And then, you know, I opened Facebook or Twitter or whatever and, and saw the news. And, um, you know, I immediately felt a little bit frustrated because it was, again, like this moment where I am forced to consider the way that people will react to me and um, people like me for being Muslim and for being Arab um, over even, even before I can process and grieve um, a major tragedy. And so, you know, it, I didn't even have really the space to to unpack the level of, you know, blatant homophobia in, and how terrifying as, you know, somebody who at this time was very frequently going to gay bars. And, you know, I, I just saw myself um, in those people and in those victims. And at the same time, I didn't because there was an immediate um, reaction as well from the LGBTQ plus community that the um the the person who perpetrated this the the uh um assailant his name was Omar uh, Mateen yeah i it just it really people were very quick to say that it was his faith and his background and the fact that he went back to live in uh you know where his family's from and i believe is afghanistan and um, that those are the things that contributed to his, you know, internalized homophobia and that it was just his hatred of hom- homophobia and like, or it was his homophobia and hatred of gay people that forced him to do this. Um, and that, you know, he was immediately gay and that just all these layers of placing the blame of homophobia and violence against marginalized people on marginalized people and this is not to say that this violence doesn't exist or that you know this person is not at fault for this violence but the assumption was that the violence you know and the homophobia was somehow more connected to his identity as a muslim and as his identity as an immigrant versus the fact that homophobia is a real thing and is is rampant and so in a country that has a high level of guns, a high level of violence, as well as still a high level of violence against home, against queer people and queer bodies, and no representation. Um, you know, those these things 
are bound to happen. And so to associate that specifically with his faith is deeply uh, problematic. And so, you know, to me, when we think about structural violence and we think about a moment of lateral oppression like that and a lateral violence where it is somebody who is not benefiting from the power dynamic, the, 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 the status quo, enacting a, le- a level of violence against other people who are also not um, at, of this at this of a position of power and who are not having a who are not part of the status quo, that kind of lateral violence and lateral oppression is only made possible through um, engaging with those same systems of oppression that enable violence against all marginalized people, and so the fact that this person had access to a gun, the fact that this person, um, you know, wasn't able to express their feelings, whether or not those existed, or, you know, the fact that that can be a narrative around this. The narrative that his homophobia must come from his faith um, or his religion and is somehow separate, unique, and distinct from an American perception of it, of homopho- homosexuality and of American sentiment to homosexuality is the issue over the narrative itself. And so in this time, I felt like I really didn't have anywhere to turn because there was no one who was really speaking um, to the people in between. And so, you know, there were Muslim communities coming out and saying that they supported the LGBTQ plus community. But in those statements, it was always toward the non-Muslim LGBTQ plus community. And then there were statements from the LGBTQ plus community that LGBTQ plus community that was very much, you know, the same way of not really acknowledging the fact that there could be Muslims who are also LGBTQ plus. And so in all of this media, in all of these things that I'm reading, you know, the day that it happens, the person that I am consistently um, finding myself, you know, thinking about is the assailant. Because they're the person who I identify with the most. Here was an opportunity to talk about LGBTQ plus Muslims, LGBTQ plus people who are first generation, who are from the the Middle East who are affected by Islamophobic media, by all of these things, and that didn't happen. Instead, for the first time really in my life, that being queer and being Muslim was on the TV, it was to explain the fact that this man committed this awful, awful um, crime and this awful murder. And as a person who has been called a terrorist their entire life, that's very jarring. Because yet again, you know, uh, the other part of my identity that hasn't been under attack since I was a child can now be seen as an influence to what could make me a terrorist. And so I started drinking at like 10 a.m. And I was wasted by the middle of the day. Um, I found out that there was going to be a candlelight vigil. My um, sisters told me that my father would be speaking there. And it was at this newly established LGBTQ plus center called um, Our Center here in Reno. And I went, you know, drunk, (laughs) but because I needed to be around community, I wanted to see my father, obviously, and I really wanted there to be, I wanted to be seen 
as somebody who is at the intersections of these two communities who are grieving and these two communities who feel very vulnerable and very scared. And unfortunately, it was just a reiteration of those same narratives, but in person. And so you had people representing the LGBTQ plus community who knew who I was, who knew I was queer, and who also knew I was Muslim, expressing this um, sentiment that, you know, they know that Islam is not like this, that they know Muslims are not like this, but without acknowledging the fact that LGBTQ plus Muslims exist. And then my father got on to speak on behalf of Muslims and took the very same tone and did not share the fact that his children are queer, more than one of his children are queer. And to me, it made me question whether or not he realized that it could have been one of his kids that were in that bar. We could have been one of the 50 people who were murdered that day. And that really shook me to my core because it made me feel more alone than I knew, than I had already, than I had previously realized. I knew that I felt isolated, but the fact that it was like in my face about an event and a specific moment in history that like has its finger right on the major intersections of my life. And I still wasn't there. And it really, it, it destroyed me. And I've never really shared with my father or my family um, how that experience made me feel. I mean, if they're listening to this podcast, this may be the first time that they're hearing about it. And it just was a really difficult time for me personally in a lot of different ways. And I was not in a position to really fight. <laughs> you know, I wasn't there to be the um, protester. I was there to mourn. I was there to mourn in so many different ways. And like, I feel like I wasn't really met um, with that level of understanding. Luckily, at this time, I had just found out about a, a Lebanese indie band called Mashrur Layla, whose lead singer, whose name is Hamed Sino, um, is is openly gay. And so, the, and the things they sing about are about gay and, and queer experiences. Um... And then I, I saw this article or I read this tweet. I can't really remember how I, how I came across it, but it was of the lead singer performing in America um, after the Pulse nightclub shootings. And he said, this is what it looks like to be called a terrorist and a faggot. And he played a song that was about a shooting that was a result of um, kind of toxic masculinity in Lebanon and really affected the queer community there. Um, and I felt seen for the first time really ever, like since I had come out, which at this point was, you know, several years. And I became obsessed and I started following them on, um, you know, every social media platform there was. Um, and at the time, you know, the only outlet I really had where I knew of other queer Arabs was through Tumblr, um, where I had a few people who I followed and, and you know, I would love their content because they're Palestinians and, and some of them were queer and, they, and many of them were just kind of younger, you know, if not queer, just at least open to other people who are. 
Um, and I actually ended up meeting some of those people that I followed when I went and got the chance to see Mashro Laila live in San Francisco, um, I think in like 2016 or something. And so it was really kind of the beginning of understanding that there is actually a, a you know, queer Arab community in it. and there are younger Arabs who are very active, you know, online and building this kind of space um, who don't, you know, have these kind of older or more conservative views of, of Islam and of queer people. And so I actually had a friend around this same time who introduced me to a digital artist who, who is um, based in Lebanon and through Instagram, and their handle is artqueerhabibi. And through them, I ended up following a bunch of Lebanese drag queens and other performers who are LGBTQ+, and um, um, so many of them. Um, but Anyanese, A-N-Y-A-K-N-E-E-Z, is really the most memorable to me, but also I just have learned so much from her um, in that process and just seeing, you know, her approach to community, her approach to drag and art, it just made me feel like I wasn't alone. Like, I, you know, there were other people who were in this conversation. And so I, you know, continued to follow them and, and see their drag performances. And then I ended up, you know, meeting other people online through Anya um, and through, you know, her community. And I I was able to experience, you know, parts of, of all of the things happening in Lebanon, you know, politically and culturally as well. And recently, there was the Thawra that happened um, in late 2019. And, you know, seeing that secondhand through these, the, the, these social presences, it was, it was just really, um, it really showed me how I can be, you know, involved in my community, even if my community might not live near me. And um, I, I met several more people through Anya. I even have gotten to meet some people in real life who are also, you know, queer and, and Palestinian and and so it's really shown me the power of developing a community and that and that I'm not alone and that there's so many other people um, who are you know, queer and Arab and Muslim or raised Muslim and, and that we have a history. You know, it, they taught me that it's not just us right now, that there have always been queer people um, and there have always been queer Arab people and queer Muslims and that our history is our own and it's one that we um we have to dig much more than others do but we are there and so it has really really changed my perspective and i've been so grateful for all of the people that i i follow and share and the more that i learn and i've you know met so many arab queer people from from all over the world who are living in different parts of the world and we have so many similar shared experiences and just you know, similar struggles. And so being able to have a community now that I can turn to when I'm struggling um, has been extremely beneficial to me and, and just has been a huge difference in my life. And so I'm very grateful. It was a long and difficult journey. 
Um, and, you know, I learned basically that you kind of have to make your own representation. And that is why I'm so grateful for, you know, this era that we live in of, of social media. And, and that's another reason that I'm making this podcast. And so I'm hoping that more people will be able to find their community and more people will be able to kind of um, just learn more about other people and, and where they come from or, you know, how it might relate to their experiences. I hope you have enjoyed this first episode of the True Gay Icon podcast. Um, on your knees is still very active. Uh, recently, there was a horrific accident in Beirut, in Lebanon, and many organizations are still reeling, and many people in Lebanon are still reeling from um, the tragedy that happened. Um, there was a very large explosion that destroyed uh, parts of the city, and a lot of infrastructure and so if you are looking for ways to get involved um, first you should follow on your knees on Instagram as well as the Lebanese Red Cross and the Lebanese International Red Cross is a great organization to donate to um, so yeah that, that's uh, where you can find more information I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this very first podcast um, my next episode will be on the history of Palestine from a Palestinian perspective, as well as telling the story of um, the first time that I went back to Palestine, as well as the time that I was most recently in Palestine. And so it'll be, um, yeah, as soon as I've, I publish this one, I will um, start on recording this next one. And so through this process, I've already learned a ton. And so... My next podcast, my next episode will be much more kind of um, polished and less segments for sure. There's like 40 something. Anyway, um, but if you are interested in hearing that, then keep in touch. Uh, follow my social media, True Gay Icon, on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow and subscribe on all of your major podcast outlets wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Um, if you're interested in learning more or, or, excuse me, in getting in touch with me, then you can email me at truegayicon at gmail.com. Thanks so much. I'll speak to you guys next time. Bye.